Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 2nd, 2019. This is episode 2351, but it's episode 0001 of 2019. Yes, this is Jack. I am back. I had that's probably the longest winter shutdown just because of the way the holidays fell uh, that we've ever had here, and it was good for me. Let me tell you what I did. Absolutely nothing. And it was, in the words of Peter Gibbons, everything I dreamed it would be. Now, I didn't actually do absolutely nothing. We did a lot of good cooking around here. Uh, we, uh, we watched a lot of, like, we caught up on some old TV shows and movies. My wife and I snuggled up on the couch in the days we didn't have the grandkids. Uh, I played with my fish tanks. I uh, took some drives, took some hikes. So it doesn't sound like nothing. What I mean by nothing is, other than answering the basic customer service emails that I have to answer even when I'm off, um, when it comes to the business, I did nothing. When it comes to prepping, other than the stuff like, oh, that's there, so since I'm going to make some shrimp gumbo, I'm going to make some shrimp stock, and I might as well shoot a video of it, right? Like, I didn't do anything. As far as like outside on my project, all these projects I want to get done this winter before spring crumbs, I did nothing. I did absolutely nothing. And it really was everything I dreamed it could be. And it's something that I advise you guys kind of to do every year. Like have a show, even if it's just a couple days. Like just turn off the news, let it all go. Don't worry about your brother-in-law who's upset because of so-and-so in the government. Don't worry about prepping. Don't worry about, you know, don't throw all your stuff away, but just let it go. And uh, this year I actually did it. Now, I've, I do it every year, but not to the degree I did this year. There was a couple times like, well, I should go out and, nope, not doing it. Not doing it. Just going to absolutely do nothing. And it was great. I think we all need that reboot. So if you can't tell, I am in a good mood after doing so. Um First show back, and this makes it easy for me because I don't have to carry a whole show myself, is a Wednesday. We are on regularly scheduled programming despite the long winter break, and that means it's interview day. I have Zach Weiss coming on. Zach's a cool dude. Zach is a protege of revolutionary Austrian farmer Sepp Holzer. Zach, in fact, is the first person to earn the Holzer Practitioner Certification directly from Sepp. Now, some of you are like, wow. Some of you are like, so what? Who's Sepp Holzer? Sepp Holzer is probably the most revolutionary farmer in the world. Um, he is on a level beyond everybody else for things he's actually caused to happen and gotten done. Um, he's up on that level with Jeff Lawton. Okay, so it's, it's kind of like that level with a different take on it. Uh, farming, you know, thousands of meters uh, in elevation in the Austrian Alps and growing lemons for one thing alone. But his work with water and hydrology is some of the most amazing that there is. And we're going to be talking about how that fits in on the modern homestead today. Whether it is the homestead large enough to put some ponds in, you know, some full-size you know, stock tanks or full-size ponds in. Stock tanks are what we call small ponds in the south, guys. Um, or whether it's just how to smartly design your gardens uh, for intensive growth. Uh, and, and, and effective water management. And we're going to talk even a little bit bigger today about how 
water management is probably one of the most important ecological things that we can be doing in the world today. More important than a lot of the crap the TV talks about. Because the solutions are immediately obvious once you understand the problem. And there's actually something that we can do. So we can't go talking about that because then we would actually expect action and what have you rather than fighting over whether or not we should tax something. You know? Um, and, and, and really, we're going to talk about all this and more. And uh, when Zach first came to me, he actually wanted to focus more on the ecological water systems stuff from a standpoint of like that macro overall view of the whole world, right? And, 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 and environmental problems in the world, et cetera. Like, you know, we talk about that a little bit, man. But I had him resubmit. I was like, I want to know from a guy that's done what you've done and, and travel with the guy you've traveled with. And this year, for instance, last year, 2018 is not last year. In 2018, Zach's company um, did work on five continents. Not in five states, on five continents. So someone that's put the, 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 you know, the metal to the soil that much, what can my people do to make their lives and their homesteads more resilient? Because in the end, when you take this macro view of all the things that we could do, I mean, I've had Jeff Lawton on, and we're like, there's a problem with the Mississippi River. He's like, well, here's how to fix it. We can say exactly how to fix it, but do you and I have access to all the land and the funding necessary to fix the entire Mississippi River and stop the dead zone every year? No. But what we do have access to is the little piece of land in our backyards, or the piece of land our, our, our father-in-law lets us you know, manage for him, or that piece of land that we're working on buying this year. So let's focus on that, because in the end, once you talk about all that, you get down to, well, what can we do? We'll work in your own backyard. So let's just start there. That's what we're going to be talking about with Zach in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. What is a gun? Here's the riddle for you. If you haven't heard the show before, if this is your first episode, what is a gun without ammunition? And what it is is an overpriced club. That's what a gun without ammunition is. At least you can sell and get some money out of it. But a gun without ammo is not a gun. It can't do what a gun is supposed to do. So you got to have ammo. you got to have it to train with. you got to have it to put food on the table. you got to have it to practice with. You gotta have it to defend your home and your property if necessary. Otherwise, you just have a bunch of really expensive clubs. So you want ammo, you want lots of it, and you don't want to spend a lot of time running around looking for it. Bulk ammo ships so quickly, you'll have your ammo quicker than if you go to the store to buy it. So check them out today at bulkammo.com. Remember, they do do a discount for members of the MSB. Next up today, we have JM Bullion. The actual precious metal. We just talked about the other precious metal, copper, jacketed, lead. What about the real precious metal? Gold and silver and platinum. Well, you'll find it all at Jam Bullion. And the reason you should do your, your shopping for your precious metals at Jam Bullion is the same reason I chose them as a sponsor. And I didn't choose Jam Bullion as a sponsor because they were the one precious metal company I could get to come sponsor the show. I've turned down big companies. I've turned down companies that if you turn Fox News on, you'll see them advertised multiple times every day on Fox News. That's a, an honest-to-God, true story. I do not want your business to go by. And, and I'll tell you why. Number one, when it comes to precious metal, I don't believe in paying significantly more for the same silver or gold. That doesn't make any sense to me. The reason we do silver and gold is because once we have an American Silver Eagle, it's an American Silver Eagle. It doesn't matter. It should all cost about the same. So number one, I want the best pricing. Number two, I don't think it makes sense to order your silver online instead of from a local place and then pay you know, $25 in shipping when you're only buying, you know, let's say, 10 ounces of silver. 
You just jacked up your cost by 12%. That doesn't make sense. JM Bullion, minimum order is 100 bucks, but all shipping's free. Next, this is my business right here, the podcast. This is what I do. And that means if I recommend a company to you and they screw up, I want to be able to talk to somebody that says, I will fix it now or I will make it be fixed now, and that person has the authority to do that. Well, I have the president of Jam Bullion's personal email. He responds to me on average, unless he's on a plane or something, within 15 minutes, and he always does that. So you tell me, when it comes down to buying silver and gold, why should you buy it from anybody else? That's the strongest endorsement I, endorsement I can give for Jam Bullion. I can't give you a reason to buy from anybody else online other than Jam Bullion. They support the show that you love. They've been doing it for seven years now. They always take care of my audience. They have the best price. They do free shipping. They do a discount for MSB members. Check them out today at jmbullion.com. Next up, as we go into 2019, let me remind you, it'll be a good time to become an MSB member or renew your membership if it's expired. Um, this is the time of year where I start getting really uh, amped up. I'm bringing new discount vendors into the MSB. If you know someone, and I don't mean you know of a company somewhere, if you know somebody who has a company that might make a good fit for this audience, introduce me to them. Take a look at what they do and see if they make sense to bring on board. Some of our best supporters we found that way. If you own a company and you can handle an audience of this size, it's, it's not like you're going to get one order out of it, okay? Uh, and you have some room to do something with your discount program, you want to make it exclusive to the members, get in touch with me. There's another thing. I got an email today from a, from a listener. I said I went to, to order from uh, High Mowing Seeds and their discount code expired. I immediately got in touch with Maggie over there. And I'm sure that by the end of today or tomorrow, I'll have a discount code, uh, new discount code to enter into the MSB. A lot of the vendors don't do um, a never-ending discount code. They, they do them for one year or something like that. And most of them have them end at calendar year. If you're ever in my MSB and you order something and you get a, a discount code does not work, email me immediately and we will look into it and get them to, to, to straighten it out for you. A lot of times, especially the smaller companies, If you do a contact to them, they'll they'll take care of you while we get our things done on our end. So please, as always, if you see something wrong in the MSB, do not hesitate to let me know. Uh, sometimes I might not fix it for a week. It's actually pretty it's a pretty big pain in the butt uh, to change things in the MSB compared to everything else I do. Um, so sometimes I like schedule a day during the week, like Saturdays I'm going to take care of it. But I always try to take care of things when I hear from you guys. And uh, so if you ever have a problem with MSB especially a discount code not working, let me know. On that, though, please actually read the blurb. Some people have a discount for you guys that's like 10% off on everything. Some have a discount that's like 5% off or 10% off on orders over, and the reason your code's not working is that you're not over that number or what have you. So make sure you do have the details right. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into our regularly scheduled programming for 2019, kicking off the year with an interview with a great dude, Zach Weiss. Again, he's the protege of revolutionary Austrian farmer Sepp Holzer, the first person to earn the Holzer Practitioner Certification directly from Sepp through a rigorous two-year apprenticeship working on projects in North America and Europe. Blending a unique combination of systems thinking, empathy, and awareness, Zach created Elemental Ecosystems to provide action-oriented process to improve clients' relationships with their landscapes, In 2018, Elemental Ecosystems did work on five continents, creating water retention landscapes around the world. He's here to talk to us today about creating resilient and abundant homesteads. With that, hey, Zach, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Jack. I'm excited to be here. 
Hey, man, we're here today to talk mostly about creating resilient and abundant homesteads around the world. And we're going to talk about how you got hooked up with Seb Holzer, a lot of stuff that you learned from that. Um, before we go to that, though, can we start out like, who was Zach Weiss before the whole permaculture ecosystem bug reached him? And, and you know, like, you're back in high school or something, and uh, how, how do you get to the point where you are interested in this type of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think a big first step for me was even as a young teenager or younger, I remember just really thinking about truth and how humans always hold their own idea of truth. And at a young age, I came to this idea that nature was the truth that unites us. Um, and so I was always looking first and foremost to nature for answers. Then that led me down a winding path. I was really into music. I was really into ecology. When I learned about the trophic cascades of wolves in Yellowstone, I said, oh, I want to go there and work on those projects. Um, ended up working with some of the people who did that research and learning enough about how the public work systems happen that I didn't want to be involved. Um, then actually studied for a couple of years with a guy who created an ecosystem greenhouse with perpetual soils. So it's been going for 35 years with no fertilizers, no outside compost, no nutrients added. He has this concept of perpetual soils. And then I came across SEP at that same event where you were at in Dayton, Montana, and that just blew the lid off of everything for me because it was the the synergy of everything that I had been looking for on a scale that really made sense. You know, let's chat about that real quick before we, we, we dig into you working there because that was one of those things that was life-changing for me. I wasn't there for the whole thing. I think one of the biggest things for me when I watched what he did there was going, number one, well, I'm not going to build four acres of hugel beds that are two meters high because that doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but when he was planting them and the level of seeding on top of seeding, on top of seeding, on top of seeding, like that forever changed the way I looked at growing anything. Like, <laughs> nice. Because I, yeah. I, mean, I, I always yeah, thought that I planted too. really densely. You know, like I plan to wait, like people go, I'm not really comfortable with what you're doing. And I'm like, good. <laughs> and then I was up there, I'm going, oh my God, like where's all this stuff going to fit? And the whole philosophy was the stuff that grows will figure out where it fits. Exactly, exactly. Let nature figure it out. You don't need to be the master designer. You just need to let the processes happen. Absolutely. So how did, how did going there lead to you like, traveling to Europe and working with SEP and all the things that you did. Yeah, so out of that, a group of, it was actually quite a number of us at the beginning, started an organization to continue bringing SEP to the U.S. and to bring English-speaking groups to Austria for workshops. And so we did this. Eventually, that kind of wound down to just me as people got involved in different things. We did that for from 2013 to through 2015, so three years. And then at that point, I continued working on projects with SEP. At that point, they weren't workshops, or if they were workshops, it was like workshops in Germany and things like that. Um, but so really, I think I just worked very hard and continued to show up and continued to work hard. And I always brought my projects to SEP and 
showed them to him and let him pick the part of the parts that were bad and tell me, oh, that's okay for the parts that are good. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, now we just have this wonderful relationship where he really wants to see me succeed. He sees all these projects that I'm doing. And last time I was with him, he said, I wish there was a thousand of you, a million of you. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm focusing on now is m looking forward is how do we make it where there's people all over the world that their profession is regenerating ecosystems. So let's talk about that. How did you take that relationship and turn it into this business now? with multiple employees working around the world. I said during the intro segment uh, about you today, the, your, your company last year, it's crazy that it is last year, right? Uh, yeah. right? Uh, did work not in five you know, countries, not in, in, in five states, but on five continents. Yeah. So how do we yeah. go from you know, that day that you and I stood there watching this master hurl seat in the air and, and being you know, like the, the, the kind of people, there's probably like three quarters of one-tenth of one percent of people in the world that would actually geek out on a guy throwing seed. <laughs> and going from that to doing what you've done with your business, how did that happen? Yeah, you know, a big part of it was that when I came to that workshop, I was already a contractor building these ecosystem greenhouses. My dad was a timber framer, so I was already supporting myself as an entrepreneur doing ecological work. Um, but so then once I saw this whole different scale that we could be working on, I started slowly. Actually, first I was selling my greenhouse clients on these other things that they could do. Um, and then just word of mouth, it started spreading. I got a lot of work in the Gallatin Valley from that. And then as I continued to show projects to Sep, now it's at this point where he recommends me for projects he doesn't want to go on. So if there's a big project in China where they want to bring someone over every year for 10 years, he sends them my way because he doesn't want to take on that kind of commitment at this point in his life. Um, and so that really having that type of mentor-apprentice relationship was what enabled me to Without SEP, I think I could have done this very well in the U.S., but this global nature wouldn't be possible without the lifetime of work that him and his wife, Veroni, and their whole family has put into developing this brand and developing this approach. Well, yeah, and I think that there's there's a lot of opportunity like that for people that will work really hard, like people like SEP, people like Jeff Lawton. I've tried to set projects over here to bring Jeff over, and he's like, he can handle it. <laughs> because, yeah, yeah. Like, you get to a point, like, I, I you know, I, I kind of want to stay home. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. just would like to be home for a while, please, you know, or even when people like they still want to do missionary work, they still want to do developmental work. You can only do so much of that. And and we need more people. So I think that's great. And, and so you, you've been involved in a lot of these projects from, you know, medium to large, to huge to probably small. So with that in mind, like most of my audience is not going to be terraforming a thousand acres, right? Yep. They're going to be dealing with. I do have a lot of people out there with a couple hundred acres, and that usually gets them into trouble, just to be honest. Uh, but I would say after you know 10 years of doing this, talking to people, the vast majority of my audience are dealing with anything from a quarter-acre suburban lot to about five acres. With mm -hmm. that in mind, if you were talking to somebody like that, that's kind of where they're at. Maybe they can go up a little bit more in acreage, but just on budget and where they're going to live, and they're trying to pick a property – what would you be looking for in an ideal property for a homestead? Yeah, with on that kind of size, I think some of the big things to look for, 
I'm always going back to water sources. So you could have a quarter acre lot with a creek running through it, or you could have something in the, on the tippy top of a mountain that's going to have no potential catchment for water. Mm. Um, whether they're from your buildings, from your roads, from the neighbor's roads, from the county roads, where are your water sources? How much water is coming in and through the property? And I actually think that that quarter acre to five acres is actually the money spot as far as what one family can reasonably manage without it being their um, their job, their daily work, basically. As somebody with three acres, I can tell you that's I, – I, I wish my property was a little bigger. I do not wish it was a lot bigger. Yeah, you know? exactly. Other than, okay, I would love to have 100 acres and about three to five of it in Homestead and, and the rest woods. That, <laughs> that's a different thing. But when it comes to what you're going to actually, you know, have a, you know, a zone one through four management strategy with, yeah, I, I, I'll tell you flat out, if you really get intensive, an acre will wear your butt out. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and it'll produce all the food you really need to eat as well if you really do it well. So you don't, you don't need these huge landscapes in order to produce your own means. Absolutely. So, what are the people? The first things people should probably look into addressing when developing that homestead. I found that piece of land. Now, what do I do with it? And let's be honest: for a lot of people, it's like, yeah, that's great. I really wish I would have found a place with a creek or whatever. I, this is what I got. Like, yep. so what do I do with what I got? Exactly. And I think the first thing you want to do is a really in-depth analysis of the resources. What are, if you think about it in a way, this is free energy all around us. There are certain areas where there's more water, certain areas where there's more sun. So really do an energy budget of the ecological potential. Um, and then you can start to figure out where is best to put your energy into. You want to know where the sunny spots are, where the warm spots are, where the cold spots are. They all have different benefits. Um, and so you got to start building that mental picture in your head. Gotcha. And so what are the – then as we do that, the, you've mentioned water a bunch of times. So let's yeah. talk about building water features and how that can play a role in regards to the quality of your life and the yep. resilience, you know, on a homestead, a farm, or just, you know, let's say the, the urban homestead. I think, you know, to bring it back, it, water is the basis of life. And so the more water you have on a property, the more life you're going to have on that property. And so once you start to really work with the water, you're now just directing which kind of lush vegetation you prefer. Uh, so one of the big things I think people can always look at is what are, by living on this landscape, what are their direct impacts? So for example, you have a home that's diverting a lot of water. You have a road or a driveway that's diverting a lot of water. Now, how do you take that resource and turn it into an asset on your property? So maybe this is diverting it into a rain garden where because you're infiltrating that water, you don't need to irrigate as much in the summer. Or maybe it's feeding into a small natural swimming pool or something that you can be cool in in the summer that's a backup water resource for your plants and animals. Um, so really looking at that nuts and bolts. And I think before we even talk about having a really regenerative impact, we want to at least balance out our impact. And so when I look at developments everywhere, I see that there should be a lot of water retention just to get us back to neutral. Mm. Um, and so how do we create those creative little 
areas. And so one of the things I'd be looking for in that analysis when I'm buying is, is there an area where I can collect water where it's not going to cause problems, where it's not going to seep into the foundation of my home, where it's not going to cause problems for the neighbor's home? Um, but are there areas where I can actually store that water in the ground that doesn't need to be a pond or a, or a swimming feature, but it could be? Um, but maybe it's just a nice garden area or even a wildlife zone with some willow trees or something of that nature. Yeah, and I, I am big on water features. If, if I could, there'd be five or six ponds on this property. I've got a limestone, um, slab. A few, oh. a few inches, <laughs> a few, it literally on some of my property, I've got four inches of soil. And then I've got a, a crumbled limestone slab followed by a completely like sarcophagus level. You could have used it to cap the pyramids limestone slab. But okay. with that, I have still like, you know, one part of the property had about 14 inches of topsoil. So we put in 11 inch deep swales mm-hmm, nice. and, and we planted the hell out of it and we started infiltrating water. And then the roots of the trees got humic acid on the, you know, the, the, the base rock, you know, very, very uh, alkaline rock. And started yep. turning it orange and eating it, and the tree started putting roots into the rock. Yeah, it's it's wonderful what they'll do. And you can't do that without water, with yep. that shallow of the soil. Uh, exactly. We've put in these things we call them Miyagi's from like uh, if you remember the original Karate Kid way back in oh, the eighties, yeah. right? So because they look like some from uh, Mr. Miyagi's backyard, we just basically take <laughs> four by fours and build like a log cabin style tank and throw a pond liner in there, and then we use that for water catchment. Okay, cool. Right. So instead of catching water off of a of a garage roof into yep. a poly tank that's closed and that does you know reduce evaporation all. But then that's all it is. It's just a tank of water that you can yep. water a garden with. No, instead now we have 3 4000 gallons of water that we have built structure into. So we use cinder blocks for structure because it's alkaline water anyway. Uh, and then, you know, we put ledges on them. We put potted plants in them. And then we go to the local stream and catch a hundred fish for free and throw them in there yep. and grow them out. And then we have a fish yield. And I, I, I look at that and I'm going, man, if, if I could dig a hole, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if yeah, I could yeah. dig a hole, I'd be dangerous. And I think that people <laughs> really need to, to think about like, you know, putting in small ponds and things like that. Like even if it is, you know, a bentonite lined, you know, 14 by 12 foot pond, what that can do to an ecosystem is, is, is striking. Um, Absolutely. And you bring up a really good point in having that water open like you do. You're making it open to all of the ecosystem around you. So there's a lot of beneficial insects that have a water reproductive cycle that need aquatic systems in order to reproduce. And so you're also creating habitat for your beneficial insects. You're also creating drinking reservoirs for different wildlife, for birds that are going to also help control the insects. And so you have this cascade of effects similar to a trophic cascade once you reintroduce open water to a landscape. Absolutely. I don't know if you've seen any of the videos of these little ponds and stuff. We've done them with stock tanks, and we have one system. It's like it cascades, so we have one little pump down the bottom. It pumps up to three um, oval stock tanks, and they go down to the circular stock tank, and then that goes down to the bottom stock tank. And and those top three oval tanks are like the ones you use for cows to drink out of. Um, They're about 250 gallons apiece. The only thing in those are like gambrosia uh, minnows, which are like the mosquito fish and stuff like that. So there's no big fish in there. So they grow. We grow tons of duckweed up there. That filters the whole system. 
And when I need to feed my bluegills that we trapped for free out of the local environment, we pull the, the duckweed back, back, get a dip net, and dip like a couple hundred minnows. Mm-hmm. And then just walk 10 feet and drop them in the yeah. other tank. Awesome. And, yep. and, and like, again, if I could dig a hole, and I just, I'm only saying that really so that people will be encouraged. Like, if you have the ability to, to hold water in the ground, Oh my God, do that because it mediates the temperature and what have you. Uh, and I really want to get into some of the things that you've seen SEP do with that and that you've been able to do as well on a larger scale. But I just want to drive that home. And then the other thing is when you have to do small bodies of water, I'm sure you'd agree, go as deep as you can. Because you have yeah. large surface area and shallow means massive evaporation. Small surface area and deep, you get a lot less evaporation issues. Yeah, it will. And again, it, it really it goes back to what your goals are and where you are and all of these things. But if you're trying to store water in a hot, dry landscape, yeah, you want to minimize the surface as much as possible. But there's also ways you can use that effect. So, for example, the thing that you're doing is perfect where you're growing feeder fish in smaller, warmer water areas so that they actually grow quicker. And so you can use each to its benefit, but absolutely, if you're trying to store water in a dry landscape, the deeper, the better. Some of those big water features that SEP did in Spain, for example, are like 16, 18 meters deep. Uh, so what is that? That's all 60 feet, over 60 yeah. feet deep. And these are earthen dams, earthen water retention structures. Yeah, he's he's got some uh, chops when it comes to putting in water features. That one he did... It was like a four and a half acre lake that we saw him do up in Montana. I, I don't know that I would have done that. Um, yeah, he did it yeah. fine. Not, nothing went wrong. I just I don't no. know that I would have enough confidence in myself to say, yeah, just push that there. It'll be fine. Um, oh, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and the thing is, he made all of the mistakes at the Kramaterhof, so now he has the confidence. He didn't yeah. just wake up one day and say, I know how to do this. He did it all of the wrong ways and figured out the right ways and now knows enough where he can use the different materials and feel quite confident. That's it. I think, I think sometimes you might come off, rub people, especially you know Americans that are not used to the directness of, of, of like Austrian Germans, uh, mm. the wrong way. Where like you start trying to tell them something, he's like, blah, 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 blah. well, it's just because he doesn't have time to explain to you through a translator. I did that and it sucked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just don't do that, right? Just don't do that. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about his techniques for like um, how you can create water features that are healthy and vibrant and use? for aquaculture or swimming on your own property? So a big piece to consider is there's you want three different types of zones in a healthy water feature. And these are all in relation to each other. So you want a deep zone, like we were saying, where you have that cool water at its most dense has also its most oxygen holding capacity. And so that cool, deep water is your oxygen reservoir, and it's also limiting your evaporative losses and things of that nature. Then you actually want, to some degree, a flat zone or the filter zone, which is the first three feet deep of water, the photic zone, where you have plants and all the aquatic systems that are filtering nitrates and phosphates out of the water. Um, And then you have a flow zone as well, which would be where water is moving. Now, this could be running water that's adding oxygen, or it could be water that you're circulating around the feature through either a sand filter or a waterway or some type of stone medium that the bacteria live upon that filter and clean the water. 
And so those three major zones, a deep zone, a flat zone, and a flow zone, any water feature, whether it's just for stock water or for swimming, you want to think about those three zones and you want to deliberately build them into your water feature. If you think about that, it's, it's a different way of thinking about edge. So like one of the big problems we have here is everybody builds a stock tank. It's what we call ponds here. They build a perfect circle. They don't put any kind of undulating features. But what you're talking about is the other edge. If you if you had a cross-section and you look at it, you've got a different type of edge that you're talking about there. And it is really, really important. That's another mistake that I see on all the farms and ranches around here. To be fair to these people, you know, their average farmer is, what, 66 or 67. They, they don't want to, you know, they do what works. And they just want a place for their cows to drink. But that's what they build. They build a, and, you know, in spite of the rock here, you go a little bit east of here, everything's large clay. So mm-hmm. building a bond is, building a pond is you dig a hole you pack it down <laughs> and you get out of the way and wait for rain and it fills up and it holds, yeah. you know. Yep. So that's what they do because it works and now the cow has a place to drink. But those types of ponds never have the life capacity that they could. And so if we talk a little bit, how do you create moving water? I know like what he did in Montana, there was a big mountain and there was a huge watershed underneath and there's a certain amount of flow from spring and you hold water here and it's going to build up and it's going to go there. A lot of people on properties, though, they don't have the capacity to create a constant flow if they don't have a creek or a spring. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I use pumps because, yep. well, it works. Uh, yep. What are your thoughts on how people can think about that so that they can create flow in their in their waterscapes? Yeah, exactly. And you're, you're going to need some mechanical means if you don't have a natural means. Um, and so this does mean water pumps or um, – you know, you can have different types of water pumps as well. If people want to be off the grid, for example, there's two different systems that work really well. One is a mechanical wind-driven water pump um, that you can actually build at home. It's not too difficult. Or the other thing that works really well is to just have a DC pump and your solar panel because you only really need that flow when the sun is out. When the sun's out and it's heating up the water and it's losing its oxygen, that's when you need the flow happening. So it lends itself really well to that. Uh, but so if you don't have that natural form of flow, you are looking at adding it somehow. Usually that's by a mechanical or electrical means. Okay. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Seb's simple techniques for like the insane high-density vegetable gardening? Oh, man. Yeah. This last time visiting him, I mean, I've seen so many crazy things with Sep. I've seen deserts that just you are driving through a desert and you get to this oasis. But that garden, (laughs) I mean, I don't know if I've seen anything like it. It just was insane. He just had, you know, one eggplant that's loaded with like seven huge eggplants. And it's so simple. It's so easy. All he's doing is rolling out moldy hay and seeding into it. And so he's opening up little patches and direct seeding into the ground. And that moldy hay, it's acting as a mulch. It's activating the soil. It's feeding the soil and it's really awakening it. Uh, and it was just, it was shocking how very simple his methods were and how very effective they were. And that was hay, not straw. That was hay, not straw, exactly, because in this case, he wants the added nitrogen to jumpstart the whole equation. Yeah, I remember he was saying something about that all those years ago in Montana, and he was almost, like, pissed off, because he was talking about how, like, you know, you drive around the countryside, and there's, like, 
30 bales of rotting hay sitting yeah. at the end of somebody's driveway so that they can get their ag exemption or whatever. And it just sits there and rots. Yeah. And, he, and you would think when he started out, like he was maybe upset, like this could be fed to livestock. And he was talking about using it for mulch back then. Uh, but I had no idea that he had that kind of results just from throwing down moldy hay and planting into it. And I know yeah, how he is and, with weeds. He just, you know, shut up. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It will. And a big piece of it too is oftentimes when you get that moldy hay, it's moldy because it's gotten wet and most of the seed has germinated. And so it's wet, it's dried, it's wet, it's dried. And by then that seed's expired. Exactly, exactly. And he's just rolling it out so it's nice and thick, really. And then he just basically peels up his sections where he wants to direct seed stuff into it. Um, and incredible results. And if that, if that ground has any kind of like existing sod or whatever, is he turning that up, putting pigs on it, or just throwing the stuff on top of it and planting into it? Now, I should specify too, this is an area that is used for multiple years. Okay. So I'm sure he didn't get these results the first year he did this technique. Sure. Um, he does, he starts with disturbed earth. Whether it's coming through with an excavator or coming through with a hoe, he's first getting rid of the existing sod or things of that nature, then rolling out this moldy hay. Um, and so you really don't have much weeds because you've, you've, disturbed everything, reset the seed bed, and then rolled out stuff that for the most part doesn't have weed seed in some, but if it's really moldy, it's pretty minimal. Plus, like, the way he plants with the amount of seed, like, where's the weed going to grow? Like, you know, it's Exactly. How do you get rid of your weeds? Like, choke them out with tomatoes, you know? I mean, Exactly. uh, (laughs) But but for, like, a homestead-scale thing, then, like, this would be a pretty easy thing for somebody to put up some electronet in the area they want their garden to be in. Throw 10 chickens in there and leave them in there for a few months, and yep. you're going to have bare dirt and disturbed soil, and that chicken will do that job you know, way better than you're ever going to do it. I remember when he said something about the pig. Somebody said, well, yep. I don't want pigs, <laughs> and he's like, if you don't want the pig, then you have to do the pig's job. Exactly. And so there, there is like that component to it, whether it's a, a rototiller, which I don't really like because I, like, I don't like what the rototiller does below where you don't see. And I yep. don't think it actually does a good job of getting rid of the sod. It just makes little pieces that grow back and get angry with you. Um, but no matter what it is, there's going to be something that has to disturb that earth. And I have seen people just do basically like rotted hay and other things like a lasagna garden. But then you got to kind of wait a season to plant into that where it kills off the undergrowth and what have you. And, and yeah. Too, yep. But you got to have – and that's just another way of disturbing the soil. Exactly. And what I'd recommend even before that, and in a way I hate recommending it because I hate the plastic, but solarization is a technique where you just basically lay out black plastic and let it be there for a month or two. And you basically kill all the stuff on top while feeding the soil life. So you're not inverting the soil and you're not disturbing the structure like a rototiller, but you are basically resetting the slate um, so that you can get going in the direction you want. Granted, there's a lot of plastic involved in that. You can get UV-treated plastic that you can keep reusing, um, but it is, it's one of the best soil-wise methods I know of, of resetting the slate. You know, I wonder if they make, you know the tarps like you put on the back of a pickup truck, they're usually like blue and black and what have yep. you. If they yep. make that in black, I, oh, yeah. I've seen them in like tan and gray and blue, but if they make those in black, those are pretty long life elements and here in Texas we probably solarize the soil in about fifteen minutes a lot. 
It's going to be no 150,000 degrees under there. But yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I, I get that. That would work really well. But one way or another, we've got to disturb that soil. And even, like I said, like the lasagna garden, way to season technique, yep. all you're doing there, you're killing everything slower, because just denying it light. And then your microorganisms are doing all the killing. Because I've seen people do that, and you, know, you pull it back, and it was like hard-packed earth, and now you can stick your hand out of there to your wrist and pull out earthworms. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's like nature knows what to do if you will give it the opportunity to do it. And uh, I think it's really cool. What do you what do you think um, the long term outlook is for providing healthy and productive landscapes for future generations? Kind of on a bigger level, you yeah. Know, regard to springs and sources of drinking water. Well, this, uh, this is, is one of our biggest problems. Honestly, is the water cycle here in America? We have pumped the Ogala Aquifer till it's almost dry. Um, one of the biggest ecological disasters there is, and it's because we don't recharge those shallow aquifers we rely on these fossil aquifers uh it, it to me on a macro level it screws up rain cycles like what, what can actually be done about that i think the you know in so many places the solution is actually really simple we just need to get out of the way and let nature reclaim certain areas um but I think a big part of it is just understanding the relationship between forests and forest management and the water cycle and how important those two are. All around the world, it's really easy for people to draw that conclusion once they cut down all the forests and all their water sources go dry. Then they realize that the forests were actually infiltrating that water that fed all of their towns and cities below. But before, it's really hard for people to realize that for some reason. And so I think a big piece of it can just be advocacy and understanding, starting to spread around more, being a civil advocate for water in your town hall, in your community. If a development's planned where they're draining a wetland, you know, be a voice for water. Or maybe it's even just like in, for example, in uh, even in dense areas, like in Denmark, they have these parks that become water retention features so when it rains the park becomes a pond but it's designed to infiltrate into the ground and then a few weeks later it's back to a park and so we could be doing that even in cities um, so there's really a lot of solutions all over the world but we really need to start looking at how do we become good stewards of water again and how do we do everything that we can to start recharging that aquifer because like you said, the situation is getting more and more severe. We're pumping out this fossilized water that's going to screw up things for generations. And it's all unnecessary. It's because of this short-sighted thinking. We need a solution now rather than thinking, okay, how do we solve this problem over five years and then really moving down that path? There's so much to that, so let's explore a few things with it. Like one of the things that made me immediately think of was the work Brad Lancaster's doing in Arizona, and and what they did with a concrete saw. These guys cut a piece of a curb out at every house and funneled water into the nature strips, and transformed transformed a neighborhood in the freaking desert. And, and exactly. I look exactly. at that and go like, there is no excuse. Yeah. For why we're not designing every neighborhood in America that way. And, you know, I think there in some ways there is hope. Like, for example, around the Chesapeake Bay, eutrophication is getting so bad that now if you want to build a home, that creates a certain amount of runoff. And they're actually now requiring people to create water retention to offset that amount of runoff. Now – 
they're not doing it in a way that's very ecological or smart, (laughs) but they're getting the first, you know, they're starting to say, okay, buy that house. We're creating more runoff. We need to offset that. Yeah. Yeah. And and my thought is how do we offset the massive amount of runoff that the other 6 million houses are doing? And I would say even more than the house is the road system. The road, yeah. Something I always look at, and I think a really interesting idea is if you look at our road systems, all of the land that's currently owned, all of the equipment, all of the workers, we could for like a 10% cost increase start having our road projects also do water retention and make a very large meaningful impact on the infiltration of water into the water table and it, it wouldn't be that expensive because they already own most of the land. They already have the equipment. It would be a little bit more, but we could start just as we rebuild roads, also building water retention to offset the road. It would be, in the words of Mike Gazer, when he talks about financial stuff and people lose their minds about little bitty things, a rounding error in the total to, to exactly. make those modifications. It would seem like a big number, but compared to the billions that they spend anyway, Exactly. It would be very, very minor to do a lot of these things. The other thing that's made me think of, when I first discovered permaculture many years ago, it was right about the time I started the show, so about 10 years ago, I, somebody sent me a link to Lawton's Greening the Desert, and I saw that, and that kind of opened my mind. And then I found Bill Mollison's Global Gardener series, and I like, I was like, who is this old crazy guy? i got to find out more about this guy. <laughs> so I started Googling everything I could on the guy, and I found like it's like a 109-page uh, no, like PDF of a series of lectures he did where somebody just basically uh, transcribed his lectures. Mm-hmm. So it reads like it's, like there's no commas. It reads like like he talks, like insane, just rambling of, of a brilliant person. And as I was, I was reading that, and there's a point – he actually never said in there. There's a point in it I just stopped, and I said, the forest floor is a lake. Mm. And when I thought that in my head, like that changed everything I thought about ecosystems forever. Like I can't ever not have that thought ever again. Like, and then finding, you know, evidence of that thought being reality over the years has been pretty striking. Like I remember reading, I don't even remember where it was. I was reading about how this one guy worked cutting timbers for the mines in Montana. And he was talking about how as they cut the forest, the creeks dried up in front of them. Mm. And you're going like, oh, how the hell do yeah. you keep doing that then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but you understand how. Because there's a guy trying to survive. Yep. He's, he's working for a nickel a day or whatever. And his job is to cut trees. So that's what he does. And that's how we ended up in all this mess with everybody just trying to – I don't think anybody ever went out and said, you know what? I just want to destroy this whole, this whole you know, 8,000 hectares of land. That's that's my goal today. I think it's all like like it's ignorance and then – we get into a certain level of like now we're 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 bought into it and we can't see a way out of it. So all we can do is plot along. That's the mindset that gets us to these problems. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's not looking at the long term impacts, you know. And it's I can understand it because when you need dinner tonight, you're not going to think about water for your kids three generations from now. That's just not a realistic situation. And I really love that the forest floor is a lake, and it reminds me too that. Not only is it that, but also the forest actually in a large way control these rivers of water vapor in the sky. And they're actually producing hygroscopic microorganisms that are seeding water vapor into clouds. And so forests do so much for the water cycle, both in and below ground, but also above ground. 
Absolutely. So I think what, what triggered that in me was I'm, I'm reading it. He was, he said something like in, in a, a, a well-developed mature forest for every foot of soil, you have two inches of it. That's water when it's, when it's hydrated. Mm-hmm. So if you have a hundred million acres of forest and you start collapsing that in half and every time you collapse it in half and you say you got two feet of, two feet of topsoil before you hit, you know, your subsoil. So now you collapse that in half and now you've got eight inches of water. You collapse it in half again, you've got 16 inches of water. By the time you collapse it in half like 20 times, it's still a huge area. Yeah. And now it's, it's freaking, you know, a 12 foot deep lake. <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely. Because that's just how math works. And you look at that and go, well, if that was, you know, a, a, a let's say a hundred acre lake, we wouldn't think that we could take it away and not have consequences. But since we can't see that lake, oh, it's just trees don't grow back. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And not only is it that lake, but it's also filtration for oh, the water so much, at the yeah. same time. I mean, it's yeah, absolutely. But it's that short-sighted thinking gets us in all of these different problems. And so it, we really need to start looking more holistically at the impacts and resolutions we want to create. Well, I mean, like if, if you really want to take it to the extreme with the lake thing. So if you go into a healthy forest and you take a, a small bit of soil and you, you put some water on it and you throw it under a microscope and you take a slide of pond water and you put it under a microscope next to it. Unless you're like a microbiologist, you're not even going to really see the difference. You're going to mm. see the same type of life forms. Now they're different, albeit, yeah. right? But you're going to see the same type of life forms and activity in, in healthy forest soil that you do in pond water. And, and that's like, so that whole microbiological component there, additionally, like you can't just take that away and think you're not going to have a, a problem. And- oh, exactly. It's the foundation upon which all other life builds. And to to think that we can govern. And, you know, you remind me even of some of these hygroscopic bacteria actually cause discoloration in commercial tomato crops. And so they're actually trying to figure out how to eradicate these bacteria that seed rainfall. Now, the people trying to eradicate them aren't realizing that they seed rainfall. Sure. But it's still we're in this biological war against some of the agents of life on the planet. Yeah, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said something to the effect is the the best way to get somebody to not understand something is to make their livelihood depend upon them not understanding it. (laughs) Yeah, like they they will find a way to not understand it because you're going to destroy my my industry. And and I don't know where I would. And it's just like there's so, you know, I, I do talk a lot about automation. And some of the things, the, the, the macro and microeconomic factors coming forward that are going to create a lot of dis- disruption and unemployment and things like that. But in the end, until we don't have any problems, there will always be something for people to do. Oh, right? yeah. Until yeah. we have no yeah. problems, we'll have some sort of employment for you. You can stop yeah. worrying about that, I guess. But, you know. Well, and that's the thing. I think when we reevaluate what we're trying to accomplish, there is so much work for everyone for a long period of time. It reminds me a lot of the, the New Deal and how we got out of the Great Depression and something like 5% of the population of America was employed by the Civilian Conservation Corp and they basically regenerated ecosystems to stop the Dust Bowl. You know, I'm not a fan of government. But it was like one of the few things the state ever did that I went, well, okay. Yeah. I mean, like if we're going to do, you know, build more roads, instead of building roads, why don't we build ecosystems? Uh, Exactly. And what I, what's made me be benevolent on that 
whole thing, the, the CCC, is, you know, having traveled around the country and used things that were exactly. built in the 1930s yeah. by the CCC. And are still – Yeah, and they look great. Yeah, they're still functioning. I mean, that was really this time where humans made a big positive impact, and it affected our ecosystems, it affected our economy, it affected everything. Well, when they did the trillion-dollar stimulus, what, eight years ago, the only thing I could find that's still here is a turtle tunnel in Florida that turtles don't know how to use. (laughs) I I look at that and go, like, what could we have done as a nation? With that money, I'd prefer that we didn't steal money in the form of taxes. But if we're going to do it, yeah. can we do something that's fundamentally long-term with it? I, I actually did a show way back then. That's way back at the beginning where I actually figured out that the money they spent on that, that we don't really know what we got out of it. They could have put a four kilowatt, and this is at the pricing in 2009, a four kilowatt solar system on the roof of every single owner-occupied home in America for the wow. same money. Wow. You talk about changing the dynamics of, of, of energy. Yeah. And, and I mean, th- that is – I don't know how else you could do that. And, and I got a lot of flack from, you know, my libertarian side of the audience. My <laughs> you know, that's you – you're, you're still still – I understand. Yeah. But they already took it. Well, that's the thing. If you're going to rob the people, at least give some of that money to the public good. Yeah, yeah. And I think that like a lot of these – the hydrology is the place I think we can make the biggest difference because bang for the buck, what you can do with a single bulldozer or an excavator, there's nothing else like that. And there's tons of land out there that is, if you want to call it public land, or it's private land where the landowner really wouldn't care if he knew what you were doing. Mm-hmm. That, oh, exactly. You know, we have GPS enabled equipment today that you, you want to swell, you can basically, it, until that thing runs out of diesel, it'll just keep going. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. the things we could do with that. Oh, exactly. And once you bring water back to a landscape, uh, as we were saying, just the impacts are huge. I mean, driving some of, through some of these projects, SEP's done in Europe, you're literally driving through a desert and you arrive upon an oasis. And that oasis, they just reorganized the resources on site to maximize the seasonal rainfall. And the impact is tremendous. It's huge. You know, it, it brings me back to I really get concerned that people are focusing so much on different pieces that we're losing focus of what's really important. And if you go back to what we need to survive, you have, what, three hours without the right temperature, three days without water, 30 days without food. And we have all of these environmental problems and everything, but I think people are so oftentimes overlooking the potential that water has to solve a wide variety of issues, be it flood, fire, and drought, be it climate extremes, be it food security, water security, all of these different issues usually stem from stresses in the water cycle. Absolutely, and that's something we can do something about. We can design to deal with that. Uh, One of the you know, my, my biggest mentor in this whole space is, is Jeff Lawton. And one of the things that he got across to me was when you design in a desert, you're designing to a flood. Yeah, exactly. And I've heard Neil Spackman say the definition of a desert is when it rains, it floods. I, I think that's pretty cool, too. And Neil's a, a much more ingrained student with Jeff. 
uh, and doing some amazing things, folks. If you haven't seen what Neil Spackman's doing over on the Arabian Peninsula, you gotta, you gotta take a look at it. I mean, it, it's pretty amazing. And that's, but like, you don't really think about it that way. Cause you think of mm-hmm. desert, no water. Well, we're designing to the extreme. And I think we should be designing to that extreme on a hundred acres, on a thousand acres, on ten thousand acres, or on one. Like, exactly. You do earthworks, well, you figure out what your, your hundred year or five hundred year rain event is. Yep. And you design yep. to that. You put your plants in. You don't design like plants that will survive. You know your zone, USDA zone six. What is the most extreme winter you had? What did that make your zone? It's, it was a four. Okay, then let's. Not, I'm not saying don't plant anything that won't handle it, but let's yeah. design the the core of the system to go all the way down and all the way up to the most extremes that the climate fluctuates here. I don't care why they fluctuate. Doesn't matter. Design to those extremes. Absolutely. And then you have resiliency. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. That's so important and so key. And it's, it's important to think not just because with a lot of these features, we're not just storing water from the rainy season to the dry season, but actually from the rainy years to the dry years. Some of these features need multiple years to fill up. And so you can actually weather sometimes a several year drought because you stored enough water in that one year where it was 10 times the normal rainfall and that got you through the next 10 years of drought. So how do we expand the time frame and the severity upon which we're thinking and designing? And I'll give you an example here locally of, of how, how those extremes can happen in a single season. So this year in, in my area in North Texas, they say anyway, is the second wettest on record. However, the drought this summer was so severe that I have trees, I don't know how old they are, but they were full-size trees when I moved here on my neighbor's property behind me in woods that died. Wow. All right, so we had this extreme drought in is a bubble inside and of course, if you get a drought in Texas, you don't get it in March, right? You get it in like yeah. July and August when yeah, it's 109 yeah. degrees. And then you're sitting on a very shallow soil environment, so you can see why those trees, you know, the trees down the road where they have 12 feet of soil, they didn't die, right? But it was this extreme position here. But that's the kind of thing you have where people come by and are like, well, this is like your wettest year ever. Like, why aren't things doing better? Because it didn't rain for 101 days. Yeah, when it exactly. Was, when it was over 100 degrees... 80 of those 101 days. Yep. And the time, the time of everything is so important. And then you get into these situations too where in those really drought, heat, wave, desertifying events, you actually are now beginning to alter the precipitation cycles as well because there's so much hot air rising off. It actually prevents precipitation from entering certain areas. And so it's just this feedback loop that continues itself. And so we're, I, everywhere I go, everyone is witnessing more extremes. And my belief is that this really has to do with the disturbance in how water moves through the planet. And it's in some ways a logical consequence. If you disturb how water moves both in the air and in the ground on Earth, you're going to get extremes where there's at times huge amounts of water and at times no water. And the thing that's gotten me this year is how well these simple solutions work. So I mentioned we did about three quarters of an acre as a food forest where we had water, you know, soil about 14 inches deep. Over there, with almost no irrigation this year, and most of those trees are improved variety fruit trees and nut trees, I lost two trees. Okay, wonderful. I, I lost two <laughs> trees on that three quarters of an acre, and my neighbor lost probably 15-year-old native live oaks. Wow. 
And, and that is a, that's a ditch. There's about 600 linear feet of ditch over. That's all that it is. It's a mini excavator. We rented it for like 300 bucks a day for two days. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was able to do that. And, 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 a, horrible environment. People come in and they're like, you're a masochist or something. You know? <laughs> like, where was your last party? I was in the Arkansas Ozarks and it was on granite. Like, why do you hate soil? I don't hate soil. I, just, I have a budget, man. You know, but I actually like to see what we can do in these extreme environments. Well, it's a great playing ground. It's a great experimental ground. And if you think how long that, two days with an excavator that you did is going to last on the landscape, that's going to create a lasting effect that's going to last generations potentially. And so these small investments in time and money and resources can really have just the greatest yield portfolio you could imagine. And if you, you know, if you are in a place where you can dig a hole and you connect those swales and you fill them, you use them to fill dams and then those dams seep into the surrounding soil. And then that creates forest and that forest holds more water. It, 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 it's wild what a very small project can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the incredible results that a small area done in the right way can achieve. So on these projects you've worked on and visited, what are some of the most impressive? What are some with the biggest impacts and some of the best return of investment that you've seen in working now all over the world? Yeah. Yeah. I think – one of the ones that I always go back to is SEP's project in Spain where they created a network of 16 different lakes and interconnected water bodies and it was a place where all the cork oaks were dying and now you go there and it's lush and green and the water features are full and vibrant and it's the largest ecological point of interest in Europe. And you can go to the neighboring reservoirs and they're at all-time lows from the continuous drought that they've had. And then you can go right next door to Tamara in Portugal, which is just such a great example on a community level because it was a community of 200 people who didn't have enough water for agriculture and they barely had enough water to drink on a deep borehole well using that fossilized water and they came to SEP and said can we even sustain ourselves here and now they have more water than they can use in agriculture their entire community is fed off of springs that are recharged with their water retention features and the neighbors have spring water downstream as well that they were all against it when the project was happening, but now instead of flood followed by drought, they have consistent year-round water. Um, and these are places that, much like Jeff Lawton's Greening the Desert project, you're just transitioning a landscape so rapidly when you really think about it. In a matter of a couple of years, you can go from not enough drinking water to sustain human life to a surplus of water. Can we talk a little bit here toward the end now about like some big scale stuff that could be done in the United States and still feed lots of people without putting 80% of the population back to work as, as, as agricultural employees? Because one of the things that you'll hear from someone, and, and they've got some validity to it, they make their living this way, but let's say grows corn or beans or rice or whatever in the Midwest is, well, it rains like crazy in the spring, and it's so muddy that just to plant my field – I have to use drainage tile or something like that to, to make it where I can drive a tractor there and plant. And then, but you, you know, you, you, you turn around and say to that person, well, by August, I need to use a sledgehammer to crack the, 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 the top six inches of your soil. So 
there's got to be some way to make these things work together. I kind of have my own theory, but I thought I could kind of hear, like, how would you tackle that aspect of things? Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, there's no simple solution until there's mechanized harvest of polyculture systems. That's going to be a problem that we have because the harvest of one system is so simple. It's hard to get people to convert. One of the first things that I would look at is just so a lot of research suggests that you can give up to 10% of your landscape Put it out of production into windbreaks and different things that will enhance production without any loss in production. So that's one piece people could do. And now if we started to actually revegetate riparian corridors, there's a great example in New Zealand where in just 10 years, there's this big harbor outside of Raglan that used to be such a productive harbor, the indigenous people would joke that you could walk across the water on fish's backs. Mm. And then they had the whole fisheries industry collapse to the point where there was no commercial fishing. In just 10 years, they restored that system to the point where there's again a commercial fishery, basically just by fencing livestock out of river corridors and allowing the tree vegetation to reclaim those areas. That's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, kind of the way I come at it is like you move water to where it's useful, you retain it so you can't retain any more of it there, and then you let go what you have to. Yep. So, I mean, I think that our, our Midwest could do with about a 14 gazillion little ponds. And when I say ponds, that might be four acres, right? I yep. mean, you know, that, when I say, when I talk about lakes, I'm talking about something that like, you know, you, you, you make sure you have a life jacket when you get in a boat. Um, and, and, and I, but, and if, I think you could do the same thing with those. So the farmer will say, or the rancher will say, well, that now that an acre of water is, is unusable to grow a bean or that four acres, I, I don't need that much for my cows to drink. Um, yeah. but the biodiversity that brings in is huge. The fact that now that like, no, people always think of dams as being completely sealed, Right. And then no water comes out of them ever. And, you know, if too much comes out, then it doesn't hold enough water, et cetera. But every dam, unless it's a concrete sealed pool, seeps into the landscape. Mm-hmm. And the more of you that you have, so now you're charging that up like a battery and you're letting that slowly seep through your dry periods into the land. And we can design this. Like I got to work with Mark Shepard. That was one of the, the, the greatest things I, I ever got to do in my life was work with Mark. And a lot of these systems can be designed so you can still use, you know, modern harvesting equipment. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, most places that I go in the Midwest, all the areas that I want to create water retention features, they're not currently in cultivation. They're all the middle areas. They're all the eroded head gullies. They're all the areas that are a problem for the farmer anyway. And so I think your your approach and strategy for them is spot on. If you have to drain the water away, store it somewhere else. And so much of the time, the ways that they're draining that water off their property, those are the areas I'd want to create the water retention anyway. And they're areas that are basically of no use to the farmer that's growing those types of uh, row crops. And it's where you see the folly of, of, of the logical thought so often. People that don't touch it, let nature fix it. Well, you broke it. Right. So yeah, now you yeah. got to do something to fix it. Like my, my wife and I spent a lot of time hiking over our downtime uh, for the Christmas holiday. And there's a little nature center a couple miles from here. And they do a pretty good job overall. It's, it's all done with private money. But like 
I, I, I'm walking through this one area and it said, please don't step on here, nature in repair. And it's this wash. And they've done absolutely nothing. <laughs> right? It's just like a gorge. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's like a crumbling limestone caliche. And you can just see it. Like every time it rains, it's just going to get bigger. Like you cannot walk on it all you want. But, you know, if we threw a few gabions in there and there and there and there, and we'd create natural terraces and that would slow the runoff and then it would seep through. And like I look at that and go, give me, give me five grand and some, some, uh, voluntary labor for a weekend. And I'm not that good, but I could fix that. Yeah, absolutely. Easy. Like, yep. like without even, like, I don't need a, an engineer to check my math, right? Like I can, and if I can fix that, then you people that do this for a living, like, we have this breakdown in our education system where we're not actually teaching people to do jobs. How I wouldn't say how to do the job, all the ways and all the options that can be done in that job. So like you should be giving the guy a Swiss army knife and what they're giving them is a screwdriver. Mm-hmm. So you've got like mm-hmm. one tool, one way to yeah. do things. Yep. You know, you got the person that doesn't care and everything's flat and smashed with a bulldozer. And then the other side is like the, the, the extreme ego hippie is like, we should just not touch it. Well, yeah. there's stuff we – either we screwed it up or we screwed – like I think a lot of times we screwed it up over here. And that screwed it up way over there. And we don't see the connection between those two. And you can leave that alone for a thousand years and nature can't fix that. Because you've created a, a, a place where the things that are necessary are no longer available in that spot. And if, we, if that wasn't true, we wouldn't, des- desertification wouldn't be a thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you can set things in motion, and that motion will continue until you set it in a different motion. So the drain tile is such a perfect example. When you put all those drain tiles in, you can see the effect that creating all of that erosive water has. And it just digs those channels deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's it's not going to fix itself. And what you were saying about this doesn't require engineers. This doesn't require I, – I think one of the best examples that I know is the – uh, Rahindra Sin in India, where this movement of peasant farmers, mostly uneducated, has created 11,800 decentralized water retention features. Now, the impact of that is they have restored five rivers, five rivers that used to go dry now run again year round, and they've restored 250,000 wells and raise the ground water table six meters in some areas. And that's, these aren't, you know, these aren't PhD scientists. These are peasant farmers in India, people with almost no means, but that are having this huge impact. So I think you used one of the most important words in the English lexicon there, uh, decentralized. Mm, exactly. And one of our big conflicts is that the state has the money. And the state wants centralization. And I do believe, to be fair, I don't think like, everybody in government's evil or something like that. I'm not, I'm not, you know, nobody dropped me on my head six times when I was a kid or something. Right? <laughs> I do believe a lot of people there want to do the right thing, but they think from a centralization and control standpoint. Exactly. And many of these solutions are absolutely decentralized. You want to solve the energy problem? Like I said, I don't like it, but if we would have put a four kilowatt solar array on every home in America, we would have gone a long way toward that. But that is not a centralized solution. A centralized solution is we're going to put a giant solar-powered energy farm in the middle of the desert with yeah, no understanding yep. of how we're actually going to make this work. We're de- and, and then the market's moving us there anyway, right? Because 
you know, yep. electric vehicles, the, the cost of photovoltaic is coming down. Like when 10 years ago, people were like, I'm thinking about putting solar on my house. And I'd be like, okay, so do you live off grid? No, then don't do it. You'll never get your money back. Now I'm going, okay, now you can look at a 20 year life cycle and generate power for seven cents a kilowatt. Yeah. Since you're yeah, paying yeah, yeah. 12, it kind of makes sense to go do it right now. Just like, just from a pure greed standpoint. Yeah. And so we're it, moving toward that decentralized system. What worked in India, though, is because those people had that control, they could just go do that. And once mm -hmm. somebody saw it work, oh, it works. Well, he did it. I'm going to do it. And it kind of went like almost like a, the positive version of network marketing, right? Like farmer A did it, and then two farmers saw it and did it too, and then like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the efficiency loss in centralization is huge. When you think about, I think that the energy is such a good analogy because most of the energy produced is lost in transmission. If you had decentralized energy production, you have a, a more efficient system with less loss. It's the same thing with water. If you have these centralized water reservoirs, you have a very expensive, inefficient system to deliver people water. Whereas when you have this decentralized system, it's very cheap, it's very easy to maintain because the water is right where you need it for all of its users. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, you know, with that in mind, Can you tell people a little bit about the company you run now, how they can learn more about it, uh, any way that maybe they can connect with you if they have projects that they think you might be interested in or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. So my business is Elemental Ecosystems, elementalecosystems.com, and we'd love to hear from anybody our process. We first really do an in-depth goals and site analysis, but I really like to have as little of the money go into design as possible. Now, you need to have a general concept plan and an idea of where you're headed, but I've seen so many times these $10,000, $20,000 permaculture master plans and the project stops with that. And so our approach is very different where we, you know, maybe spend a few thousand in planning, but then let's go right into the work and let's actually create changes on landscape that then you can live with and that are creating your goals with your particular site also in mind and, and represented it as well as possible. Well, very cool, man. I really appreciate you being uh, with us today. Uh, really great that we got to have you as the uh, inaugural podcast of 2019, uh, <laughs> kicking things off, I think, with a great subject. And, uh, man, dude, if you want to come back and, ch and chat another time, just fill out the form. We'll get you on. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to. You know, I listen quite a bit. I've listened to a lot of your podcasts over the years, and it's a great show. And yeah, I'm really happy to be here. A great start to 2019 for me as well. All right, Zach. Well, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thank you, Jack. Well, great interview. Good kickoff to 2019. As we wrap things up today, I want to remind you one of the ways you can support this show and the work that we do is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. It's a little domain short re redirect URL that goes right to a spot on this TSP website. You spell it just like it sounds, tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Get on over there. You can see all the reviews I've ever done of all the products. You can find them alphabetically by category, and you can see the most recent reviews. And you can see like the, the gold box deals, the deals of the day on Amazon. But if you start your shopping at T-Spaz, you support the Survival Podcast and the work we do no matter what you buy. Today's item of the day is the second highest uh, all-time selling product ever at the Survival Podcast. The number one one is actually the Gerber EAB Lite, the little razor blade folder knife. 
Um, the number two item, and I have not you know, been recommending it for as long, so for it to be number two is pretty impressive. It's the Kingbow Reflector 45-watt LED grow light. So um, this is a, about a 12-by-12-inch 12 12 LED grow light, again, 45 watts, and it's really best for starting plants. You can grow plants with it, but it's best for starting seedlings. And uh, they're down to like 28 bucks now. And to me, there is nothing on the market in that price range. Like, let's say under $45, this is good. So it's one of those price-value ratio things why I keep recommending this thing. And, and the reason I think it is as good as I think it is, it's not just because of the results I've had, but because, you know, in years of recommending products to you guys, um, selling thousands of these, I've not gotten a single email, Jack, my Kingbo light sucks. Um, I, I have gotten an email or two from somebody who said, my Kingbo light had some lights that weren't lit when I got it. It was just the kind of DOA halfway. Uh, and I contacted Kingbo and they just sent me a new one. Now, that's the kind of stuff I want to recommend. And I am, I'm actually, and I have been for a year now looking for a better value in grow lights. And I, I haven't found one. I can find a better light, but it'll cost you 80 bucks. And it's not that much better, right? So I love these things. Now, I want to talk to you about how to get the best results out of these and why I'm bringing them around right now. We just talked a lot about growing stuff. Most of this audience is, audience is in some level growing some of their own food, whether it's just a simple herb garden or a full on, you know, vegetable garden or whatever. And it gets really expensive, and it ends up being, you know, you're not making money when you're buying all your plants. So growing your own plants from seed makes a lot of sense. Some stuff like squash and pumpkins and beans, you just stick in the ground when it's time. But tomatoes and peppers and things like that, these are the plants that we really want to start and get a head start with and put out nice, healthy, stocky little plants. So January is probably not the time to do this, but it's probably around February 14th, around Valentine's Day, in most of the United States, it's like the best time for peppers and tomatoes and other things like that. That's six weeks away. That six weeks in the start of a new year is going to go like this. The time to get everything ready for starting your plants is now. Then do the math backwards from your last frost date. Figure out when you should start your plants and you're all ready to go. And if you should start, let's say, this plant, you know, eight weeks out, you start it. And two weeks later, this other plant, you start that plant. So that's why I'm bringing it around the first of the year. I just think it's a good thing to start out thinking about. Even if you have the lights already, get your area set up. Next, I want to talk about how to get the maximum results out of these lights. It's a 45-watt grow light. This is not high-intensity light. Uh, and the beauty of that is it will not burn your plants. You need to bring this thing down when you're starting your seeds so they're only a couple inches above your starting tray or your, your cups. And when those plants grow, you want to keep that light about two inches above the leaves. And you will get fantastic, stocky, when I say stocky, I mean thick, low, heavy, thick stems, bushy leaves growth if you do that. And they come with a little hanger, little wires, and a little uh, carabiner to hang. It's fine. You figure out however you want to hang your light. If you can set your lights where they're easy to raise the lights, that's fine. The Great, then do that. What I have found, you know, you get plastic shelving for 30 bucks from Lowe's or something like that. And you just wire tie the damn things right up to the bottom of the shelf. And then get something like some bricks or some wood or something and raise up your tray. And then you just remove and lower your tray as your plants grow. And the good news, unless you leave it there for days, if your leaves reach, leaves reach up and start touching that, that, that light because it's not a super high intensity hot light, it won't burn them. Now, if you leave them there for weeks, then you're going to have problems from more than just the light. But it's not like a T8 or a T5 where it's actually going to burn your leaves. I love these things. At 30 bucks, you know, you can buy two of them. 
and, and do one, uh, one shelf level, you can start as much plants as most people with a small garden are going to need. Uh, and, and that pays for itself the first season you use them. Check them out today. Again, number two best-selling item of all time on T-Spaz, the Kingbow Reflector 45-watt LED grow light. When I started recommending them, they were $39, and they were a deal. And again, now they're down to $28, and that's, that is the price-value curve. That's just quantity of scale, uh, economy of scale going there. They've sold so many, they can keep selling more and more for less and less. Uh, get them while you can. There may be a better light someday. If there is, I'll tell you right now, for a budget, this is the best that there is. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up today with our song of the day. Our song of the day today is a really cool song, and it was originally going to get worked into kind of the Christmas season, and I thought about it. it's really not a Christmas song, and it's not even a Christmas song. It's not a Christmas song like that week we did of that. This is a winter song, and uh, it was not very wintry. Uh, in Texas, North Texas, while uh, the Christmas season was going on. And that has sure changed today. And I kind of felt that it would, so I punted this for the first song of the new year. And it's called A Winter's Tale by Queen. This is a beautiful, operatic rock song. And it is just awesome. And I don't like weather like we're having a sleet and a little bit of snow and ice and freezing rain and cold and wet and nasty and muddy. I don't really like it. But listening to a song like this makes it a little bit easier to deal with. I know some of you are waking up to very white winter wonderland today. And boy, this song is made for that. This song just makes you want to be in a cabin somewhere in the woods with big snow drifts and a roaring fireplace and the snow falling. Great way to start out the new year. Great way to look at winter. And remember, we prep all year for when winter comes so we can get through winter. That's the grasshopper and the ant. But winter is that turning the corner into a new season to get ready for the coming year. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It's winter fall Red skies are gleaming Oh Seagulls are flying over Swans are floating by Smoking chimney tops Am I dreaming? Am I dreaming? The night's drawing There's a silky moon up in the sky Children are fantasizing Grown-ups are standing by What a super feeling Am I dreaming? Am I dreaming? Whoa, 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 whoa